Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine, a show where we report, rebel, and tell it like it is. On this show, we center your concerns about rebuilding our nation and advancing the promise of equality. Join me as we tackle the most compelling issues of our times. On our show, History Matters, we examine the past as we pivot to the future. On today's show, we focus on the question, has the United States forgotten its immigrant roots? Events in the past few years have greatly impacted Latinx communities socially, economically, and politically, from a frozen asylum system and huge camps on the Mexico border and family separation policies to the worsening lack of health care and the after effects of COVID-19. Latinx communities are at a disadvantage, both inside and outside our borders. Meanwhile, those held in detention centers face an added layer of challenges, ranging from lost children, quite literally, to an increased risk of COVID infections. This raises the question, are detainees now seeking self-deportation to avoid contracting COVID? What about sexual abuse? Despite numerous lawsuits and thousands of complaints filed against detention facility staff, the staggering pattern of sexual abuse seems to continue in immigration detention centers. Outside the detention centers, members of Latinx communities struggle economically and socially. As major representatives of workforce in essential services, such as meatpacking, agriculture, and healthcare, these workers face the uncertainty of losing their jobs. They are at an increased risk of contracting COVID. And what if they do contract COVID? How will they recover with increasing lack of health care. And then there is DACA. There's so much for us to unpack on these issues. And so helping us to sort out these questions and how we should think about these issues and more are very special guests. Kevin Johnson, he is the Dean and maybe a Pellis Professor of Public Interest Law and Professor of Chicano Chicana Studies at the University of California Davis School of Law. He is also the author of How Did You Get to Be Mexican and Opening the Floodgates, Why America Needs to Rethink Its Borders and Immigration Policy. Also joining us is Domingo Garcia. He is an attorney and the national president of the League of United Latin American Citizens, also known as LULAC. And finally joining me is Mary Giovanoli. She is the senior counsel for legal strategy for kids in need of defense, otherwise known as KIND, and the former executive director of Refugee Council USA. She served as deputy assistant secretary for immigration policy in the department of Homeland Security from January 2016 to January 2018. So let's start with a more general question and open it up uh, to our guest. How have Latinx communities been impacted economically, politically, and socially during the past few years? I open this up to any of my guests. I'd be happy to talk a little bit about that because I think what the Trump administration has engaged in over the last few years is what I would call a new Latinx repatriation, an effort to remove as many uh, Latinx non-citizens from the country as possible. Uh, Other groups are affected as well, uh, including Haitians, Muslims, uh, and and, and people from the developing world, people of color from the developing world. But we're seeing a a series of, of very concerted efforts to reduce the immigrant population, and in particular, reduce the Latinx population. You can look at what has happened to the, the Deferred Action Childhood Arrivals Program under the Trump administration. Uh, and about 90% of the recipients of DACA uh, were from Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, uh, and El Salvador. Uh, you look at the efforts by the administration to rescind what is known as temporary protected status, uh, a form of relief that's been extended to Haitians as well as Salvadorans. Uh, and that relief uh, was was attempted to be taken away from several hundred thousand people from El Salvador and Haiti. You can look at workplace raids. Uh, you can look at immigrant detention. You can look at removals. And you look at all of those areas, you see the, the disparate impacts on Latinx immigrants. And in some ways, I think this takes us back in history 
to some previous episodes where the U.S. government and state and local authorities tried to rid the country of unwanted uh, Mexicans. You can think of uh, Operation Wetback, what it was known as in 1954, a mass deportation campaign. You can look back at the Mexican repatriation during the Great Depression, where hundreds of thousands, probably more than a million, uh, Mexican uh, um, immigrants and U.S. citizens were removed from the United States. So I think that the impacts on the Latinx community over the last few years has been devastated in terms of immigration, also devastating in terms of COVID. You look at COVID numbers, devastating in terms of the economy, uh, devastating in terms of um, the, the, the impacts, health, economic, and otherwise on essential workers, uh, people who work in the fields. And, and we have communities now that are just terrified uh, by what can happen through the U.S. government's efforts. So, so I think it's been what I would call, uh, to use a sports analogy, a full court press on the Latinx community. So why is this? I mean, we've heard absolutely racist statements coming out of this White House. I mean, what they're undeniable, um, calling Mexican people rapists and murderers and drug dealers who would overwhelm suburban communities. Why the targeting of Latinx communities? This is Domingo Garcia and uh, National President Lulac. We've been dealing with what a, uh, a history in this country of uh, Police brutality is nothing new. The Texas Rangers were lynching and killing Mexican-Americans uh, in the early 1900s till today. And we're seeing uh, voter suppression, uh, trying to purge uh, Latinos from the rolls uh, to keep us from voting. They're scared of our political power and they're using immigration as a wedge and fear issue. And it's just really uh, shocking that a president of the United States would use Latinos as political piñatas and immigrants uh, taking children from mothers and fathers in order to teach them a lesson. Again, this is not the America that we th think about when we see the Statue of Liberty or when we pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States and we say we're liberty and justice for all. This is a warped America that's being led by the far right wing in this country. And in fact, on that very note, as you were talking about family separation, children in cages, uh, lost children under the El Paso program of 2017, any person, including parents traveling with children who crossed the United States border without permission, according to this administration, would be detained and prosecuted. And upon detention, we saw that children were taken away from parents and separated, leaving parents unable to track their children at a later time because there was no system in place to facilitate uh, reunion. So, Domingo, I have this question for you. Um, as an attorney and a civil rights leader, what can be done to stop this horrific practice of family separation? Where do we even be begin to start? And, and let me just frame that for our listeners by saying in June 2018, the Washington Post reported that a 39-year-old Honduran father separated from his wife and child at the border killed himself in a Texas jail. That same month, CNN reported that Federal authorities allegedly snatched an undocumented immigrant's daughter from her hands while she was breastfeeding the child in a detention center. And we know that thousands of children have been separated from their parents at the border and are lost or being held in cages even now. So, so where do we start and what do we do about this? Well, you know, I was in McAllen, Texas uh, a year ago uh, at a protest in one of these children's jails. Now, just think about that whole concept. A jail for children, one, two, three, four-year-olds, whose crime is that the parents wanted a better life for them, whose crime is they turned themselves in and asked for asylum and asked for help from what is supposed to be one of the most generous immigrant-friendly countries in the world. And instead, they were turned away. I remember being in front of a, a prison bus that was leaving that site. And, and, and seeing uh, little hands on prison bars in this bus, uh, maybe a three or five year old, I took a picture, it went national, um, that kids were being turned around in prison bars, uh, prison buses. Uh, and then that the, 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 the last week that it came out that the White House voted, they had a vote to take children away from the parents. And it passed. 
Where are the good Americans? Where are the, the, the adults in the room at the White House? Why do they believe that, be, that being mean and cruel and evil is something that is the American way? And we've had to fight them. We've fought them in the courts, uh, challenging the, the whole separation family, trying to close down these uh, baby jails and, and kids' prisons. Uh, we've had protests and demonstrations. But it's going to take the entire American public to realize this is not one. Uh, this is going to be a shameful episode, kind of like the Japanese incarceration uh, during World War II of Japanese Americans. It's just shameful what they're doing, and it's shameful the purpose of why it's being done strictly for political gain by this White House. Michelle, before you, um, before we leave this topic, um, I wanted to add a couple of things. Um, I think that it's really, really important to understand that this notion of family separation uh, really existed even before the zero tolerance policy. So in fact, the Trump administration had been sort of piloting this idea that one way to deter people from coming would be if they were warned ahead of time that they would be separated from their children. And so there were roughly... Um, 1,500 kids separated from parents before that um, that separation, the zero tolerance policy was announced, and then it escalated like crazy um, in the two months when it was really in place. But it was advocacy, it was you know litigation, it was a number of, as Domingo said, really people leaning into protesting this that got the administration to to step away from it. The problem is it still hasn't stopped, and as you noted. Um, the administration is continuing to use um, tactics of family separation as a way to keep um, keep the pressure on families to uh, to not uh, try to enter the U.S. And in fact, it's even gotten to the point where um, now under the COVID rules, there are a lot of times when parents are given the choice of whether or not to let their children be released into Office of Refugee Resettlement custody and separated from them or for everyone to, to, to go back home. So they're, they're actually putting the choice on the parents now in a way that is incredibly cruel. Um, and also, you know, contrary to, to, to due process and to the, the protections that the children enjoy in our system. But um, it's, it's part of this much bigger tactic to use whatever tools the administration sees that it has to pressure people to um, make make the decision not to come to the U.S. when in fact we know many times people are coming here because they have no choice. They're mm-hmm. they're fleeing persecution. They're fleeing incredible violence. They're fleeing economic um, devastation. Climate change. More and more, there are a number of things that are pushing people to continue to come to the U.S. And the Trump administration has never acknowledged that aspect of it. That this isn't a you know a, a punishment situation. So Mary, I actually want to pick up on another aspect of this, which is that not only have there been kids separated from their parents at the, at the borders and these cruelties that you've just described, that Domingo has described, and the historical ones that Dean Johnson has uh, described as well, but there are people that are now being uh, prosecuted for leaving water at the border and doing humanitarian aid. Can you pick up on that and share anything about that? I think that... Again, it's part of a trend to try to uh, restrict access to the U.S. And so in some ways, you know, most of that is targeted at migrants, but it also is targeted at people who are trying to help migrants. And it's not just leaving water, but there's there have even been circumstances where, um, you know, prosecutors and uh, judges have been pressured or threatened because of actions they've taken to try to, to mitigate some of the, the damage that ICE has done. And um, I think it hasn't gotten as much traction or as much attention because it's, it's a little bit quieter, but it, it's sort of part of a process to sort of scare people into um, not helping to scare people into feeling like the, the, the folks who are, are coming to this country are untouchable in a way. It's amazing. I, I want to pivot and talk about the sexual abuse in immigration detention centers. So there have been allegations that guards in immigrant detention centers, such as the center in El Paso, have sexually assaulted and harassed many of the folks who have been detained. The United States Immigration and Customs Enforcement, otherwise known as ICE, annually detains on average 50,000 people in detention centers. And between 2010 and 2016, 
Uh, we had nearly 15,000 complaints alleging sexual and physical abuse filed against ICE. But we've also seen that in recent years. And something that's been absolutely horrific has been to see this against children. And so I wonder if any of you can speak to these matters of the kind of sexual abuse that's being experienced by people who are in detention, including children. We've seen centers. A lot of these are, by the way, for-profit detention centers that the government is paying for, sometimes about $800 a day to keep children uh, in, in cages that are sexually abused. Uh, Domingo, reports- stop there. Did you say $800 a day to keep these children locked in cages? Correct. That's what the government's paying these private contractors. Amazing. You can stay at the Ritz-Carlton for that, but that's what they're doing. And they're giving them bologna sandwiches and canned uh, soup uh, as uh, lunch and dinner. And, and and then they're being subject to sexual abuse. We saw a center in Phoenix where uh, one of the guards uh, was had sexually abused three uh, boys, um, one of them who wound up with HIV positive. We've seen uh, women also sexually abused by guards at multiple facilities. These have been well-documented. ProPublica actually uh, did a very extensive uh, report on this. And, and yet the complaints and the char- no charges ever filed by the local district attorney or by the U.S. prosecutors. They're handled internally uh, by some type of internal affairs where it gets lost. And unfortunately, ICE has the largest number of officers that have been charged with crimes of any law enforcement agency in the country. And that's basically because they're unregulated and they're preying on immigrants that don't have many, many recourses to go forward and file their complaints or file a lawsuit. I think we have to make some distinctions, though, especially with respect to, to children. Most unaccountable minors um, who, who really are either separated from their parents or come to the country um, on their own are within the custody of Office of Refugee Resettlement. And they tend to be in in sort of more traditional shelters. Um, and there's certainly been some um, abuse allegations leveled at, at uh, folks in the ORR system. But I think that, uh, you know, sometimes even though it's powerful and it's it's dreadful when we talk about children in cages, we don't quite get at the complexity of the systems that are involved for um, you know taking care of kids within the system. So it's certainly not perfect, and I'm not condoning any of the awful things that have been alleged or reported. But there are systems in place that are designed to protect kids. Um, it doesn't always work, obviously, but. Um, Well, clearly not, Mary, because between 2014 and 2018, the federal government received 4,500 complaints of sexual harassment of children. And the allegations range from detention facility staff fondling and kissing minors to watching them shower and even raping them. Yeah, no, look, I'm not, I I don't have any, I don't work on that particular area, so I don't have a a great deal of knowledge on it. I'm more just trying to sort of say that uh, we have to look at sort of, there are all these different parts of the system in place that you have to look at. And so, um, so we just, we just need to understand that there, there are a lot of different. Help us understand that Mary. So, so for listeners who may not, who may not have a full grasp of how these different systems operate, could you give us a little bit more background? Um, sure. Uh, so under the, uh, at the time that DHS was created, the responsibility for, um, DHS for our listeners who don't know, DHS. Department of Homeland Security, uh, the, uh, back in 2003, the responsibility for, um, the care and custody of unaccompanied children was, uh, delegated to the, um, health and human services, um, agency or department, um, specifically the office of refugee resettlement. And um, so they have set up a series of, of shelters and other um, mechanisms for um, taking care of kids who come into the country unaccompanied with the goal always of releasing them to sponsors. Um, the idea is that you always should be using the least restrictive method possible for um, um, housing kids and uh, getting them to uh, a family member or some other sponsor is the critical thing. Um, and so that system has been 
um, put under a lot of pressure and compromised in a number of ways by the um, the various policies, particularly of the Trump administration in the last few years, that have made it um, have created situations where where kids are being detained for much longer periods of time at CBP holding facilities or um, temporarily in in ICE custody um, for reasons ranging from the family separation issues to uh, just poor communication between the agencies about moving kids to where they should be, and also efforts, especially now under COVID, to simply expel kids. So now sometimes kids are being housed in um, hotels rather than in, you know, appropriate child-specific facilities. And you mentioned CBP. What does CBP stand for? Sorry, Customs and Border Protection. Okay, that that's really helpful. So, so Dean Johnson, I I want to bring you back into this conversation. So, why is it that there's? Do you think that there's been this unique targeting of children? This kind of unique separation. What's been behind that? Well, I think um, the bigger picture is detentions have increased dramatically since 1996 immigration reforms. Uh, made detention mandatory in many circumstances and gave the government more discretion in detaining people. Uh, I, I think child detention has been subject to what's known as the Flora Settlements, uh, which limits the amount of time that the children can be held in detention. And the Trump administration has sought to abrogate or eliminate to end the, the Flora Settlements, been to court many times trying to do that, uh, and it's tried to indefinitely detain children with their families. And one of the problems is more children are in detention. You have detention facilities. Some of them are, are, are is, is Domingo mentioned, uh, private contractors with very little oversight. Uh, and there's not a good system in place to ensure the safety of any of the detainees, including the children in detention. And it, it, it's also uh, immigrant women who are subject to violence and abuse. Uh, and there are very few legal per, legal avenues uh, that can be pursued to stop this. Uh, the Supreme Court just decided a border shooting case that said that um, border officers couldn't be sued uh, for killing. A, a, it was young... shocking. That was just an absolutely shocking case. Yeah, and and I think the fact that there's it's very difficult to to punish this kind of activity encourages this kind of activity. Uh, and when you have a system in place with very few oversights, you've got private contractors that are worried about money as opposed to rights. This is a system that's ripe for this kind of exploitation, and it's uh, sad and tragic. And the Trump administration has thought you know, um, that separating families was a good way of deterring more migrants from coming. Um, and, and the idea is that if the word gets out that will separate families, fewer families will come. Uh, and so it's been a, a conscious effort of the administration. There recently was a Washington Post article that talked about a debate in the White House uh, about family separation. And, and even after um, the, sep- the policy was, was uh, um, dismantled, uh, President Trump apparently said that he wanted to bring it back, separate families, fewer families will come. Uh, they're all asylum abusers anyway. And in his mind, uh, he uses terms like illegal aliens, asylum abusers. Part of the problem is the, the, the view is that these migrants aren't even human and they don't deserve human protections. And who cares about them anyway? Well, on that note, I actually would like to pivot right back to Mary because we've heard time and time again stories of children that uh, have left their home countries and that they were doing so to run away from gang sexual and physical violence and to find a more peaceful life in the United States. And yet they've only ended up in U.S. Uh, immigration detention centers and exposed to sexual violence, physical violence, just as we've talked about. So it's hard to imagine what these children are going through emotionally, mentally, physically, and helplessly. So, so Mary, please share with us some of the initiatives that Kids in Need of Defense, KIND, has helped, how it's helped these children. One of the most important things that I think KIND has pioneered in the last few years is to ensure that in our offices, and we, um, we provide um, both direct representation of unaccompanied 
uh, children as well as matching unaccompanied children with pro bono counsel um, to to try to um, ensure that as many kids as possible receive um, legal assistance. Um, so just to back up and explain what we do. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, children aren't guaranteed counsel. No one's guaranteed counsel in um in uh, the immigration system uh, per se. And so kind, you know, fills that gap um, for, for many, many kids. But it's, it's clear that in, in working with children that you have to also provide a number of social service supports uh, to make sure that they really are getting the attention they need for, uh, you know, a range of things that are happening because they've left their homes, they've left their families. In many cases, they um, are, you know, confronted by a system that's confusing to uh, everyone, really. And if you don't speak the language and if you are, you know, very young, it just none of it's going to make sense. So some of it is just having caring attorneys and other professionals there to help guide the child through the process. Some of it is ensuring that there are um, programs in place that actually help um, help kids with other aspects of adjustment. And so in all of our offices, we have social service coordinators to, to, to try to address, you know, sort of the most immediate needs. But then KIND also does a lot of work um, uh, in country, particularly in Central America, and recognizes that, for instance, there are times when children, um, it's in their best interest to return home sometimes. And um, so we actually have programs that deal with repatriation as well to, again, ensure that if they have to go back, they go back to a situation where there's some support and some um, programming available to them. So, you know, we're really guided by the, the motto that you have to do what's in the best interest of the child. And uh, that is, of course, a very uh, individualized assessment. Um, but it really is sort of trying to look at primarily what their legal needs are, but then recognizing that that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg, frankly. Mm-hmm. And best interest of the child has always been complicated, even when we don't have immigration or refugee status added on to that. Just as you were describing that, images came to mind of children in diapers and, and little kids in immigration courts with attorneys crying, kids who can't even sit appropriately in the chair because they're just way too small in order to see the judge. And and, and it's really frightening. It's, it's really horrific. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, 2020 has brought yet another serious issue, and that's been COVID. We're in the middle of a pandemic. And Domingo, I've seen your active work in this space as you've been trying to help reporters and others understand just how this pandemic has impacted Latinx communities in the United States. Um, There are reports that these detention centers uh, use toxic COVID uh, disinfectants that expose the detainees to serious health risks. Some guards reportedly spray these toxic chemicals everywhere over 50 times a day, causing detainees to experience bloody noses, burning eyes, headaches, and even bone pain. And yet at the same time, we also know that Uh, At meatpacking industries, there have been hot spots for COVID. And so some have wondered, what's the greater evil? Staying in overcrowded detention facilities in danger of contracting COVID-19 and possibly experiencing serious health complications and even death, or voluntarily vacating these facilities and self-deporting? I mean, these seems like uh, really too evil. So Domingo, can you tell us a little bit more about these issues, COVID and immigration? Well, these are really tough issues uh, to deal with. I mean, these are families, if you think about it, most of them are Central American. They've made a journey from Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, uh, many times through very horrific uh, circumstances uh, through Mexico to get to the border and then to try to cross uh, and ask for asylum because they're fleeing, usually uh, gang violence, terrorism, things like that. And yet uh, they're put into crowded detention centers where COVID-19 has uh, become a, a big issue. Uh, and many times they are being denied uh, basic health care, uh, medical care. 
and it makes it tough uh, for them. Uh, it makes them, do they go back? Uh, the United States has adopted uh, a policy where we now have uh, basically refugee camps on the Mexican side of the U.S. border with people being, uh, numbers literally being written on their arms so they can get a line to come and talk to somebody and usually be rejected. And those that do come across being incarcerated in dangerous conditions. So it is a tragic humanitarian crisis. And it's been made, it's all man-made. It could just be done away with if we just had a new administration. Not to say Obama uh, administration was all great, but they never went to the extremes that we're seeing now under the Trump administration. Well, you know, there are aspects of this, Domingo, that the American public know about. But some of this, I don't think that people know about. Writing on people's arms and these huge camps on the border, why why is it that this isn't making mainstream news sufficiently enough to counter when this administration says, look, we're just trying to keep people safe from the Mexican gangs and we're just trying to keep people safe from Mexican men who want to come to the United States and, and rape women, which sadly is the message that has come from this administration? It's a lack of attention because it's happening on the border uh, many times in relatively small towns like McAllen, Texas. You don't see a camp with 5,000 women, children uh, camped out. Uh, you don't see uh, the ICE, uh, the immigration agents there literally writing numbers on them and saying, come back when we get to 1,344. Um, and they need to show the numbers and they know that they've been in line. Uh, it reminds you what something you would have thought about. Uh, it's not a tattoo like in a German concentration camp, but again, just people are reduced to numbers and uh, an assembly line. They're not being treated as human beings. They're not being treated as fellow Christians. And that's, again, something that we need to bring to the attention and, and hopefully shows like this and the media will put more attention to the plight of these refugees. An additional question I want to add on, and, and I'll add Dean Johnson to this too. Sometimes within the media and broader conversations, there are conflations about the status of in, of individuals who are seeking to come into the United States. So conflations between people who are seeking asylum and individuals who are coming to the United States because they want a better education or they want better jobs. Can you help tease out some of the distinctions here? Because they've been all put together. And Mary, you can join in on this too. But Kevin, why don't I start with you? Sure. I mean, th there are some asylum seekers, people who are fleeing persecution uh, in, in actually in Mexico, but also more commonly in El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras, where violence is rampant in society. Uh, and much of the, the violence is gang violence, but there, there are also women and children who are fleeing domestic violence. Uh, and it, for a time, the Obama administration was much more generous in treating the asylum claims of people fleeing gender, um, uh, gender violence, domestic violence, and also uh, uh, gang violence. Uh, there also are some people uh, who are coming to this country um, to uh, work, uh, who want to work and, uh, and want, want to be part of, of this country's labor force. And that labor migration has been ongoing for, for generations, particularly from Mexico and particular parts of Mexico. Some argue that it's that the, the flow of workers is, is, is increased after the North America Free Trade Agreement um, made it more difficult for farmers in the countryside to, to eke out a living. Um, but there are, are people seeking asylum, and there are asylum claims that are, that are granted, so it's not all abuse, as the president would say. And then there are, are people seeking to rejoin family in the United States uh, and to work in the United States. Uh, and some would say that the, 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 the legal immigration rules are just not uh, sufficient to deal with the demand of people who want to come to this country, uh, that you can be waiting for visas for 20 years uh, in line and being separated from, from family members. Um, and, and so, you know, there, there are distinct flows of people coming for different reasons. Sometimes it's hard to, to separate them out. Um, uh, the, the administration has treat, treated them all as, you know, illegals who violate the law. Uh, but I think it's much more, more nuanced than that. And as a practical matter, uh, the reality is 
the wall uh, that the president touts doesn't stop anybody from coming across. Uh, Im immigration from Mexico is pretty much zero. Uh, the immigrants who do come from uh, Central America, they, they turn themselves in at the bridges, so no wall is going to stop them. And then legal immigration, as he just mentioned, has basically almost ended under President uh, Trump. That's legal immigration. Trying to come into this country now under any type of uh, visa or work program has all but been eliminated because of Stephen Miller and the Republican policies through executive sessions. So there is no legal way almost to get to the United States. Uh, and there is uh, the, the few options like applying for refugee status has also been almost turned into a, a negative. It's just uh, horrific what's happened under this administration. Mary, you were going to add? Yeah, no, I was going to add that... Um, you know, both Domingo and Kevin's points are, are spot on that, you know, this is this is so difficult to um, address because, you know, when we when we focus in on one aspect of the of the system. So in this case, what's happening at the border, um, it, it, there's so much to talk about and it's such an enormous set of issues, but it's actually an interconnected set of issues. So because we have an immigration system that, as Kevin said, doesn't reflect where we're at today. Um, both in terms of our, you know, need for legal immigration and the kinds of humanitarian issues that we're facing, we actually um, get into a situation where uh, I think it becomes really difficult for people to talk about the immigration system kind of holistically. And then that allows the Trump administration to come in and really exploit all kinds of um, both executive um, authorities and uh, gaps in the law to, to turn it into a system that is really all about denying access for, for anyone really and um, limiting protections. And so the, the important thing to remember, I think, as we try to look forward to what the system could be, is that we have to sort of reimagine our immigration system as one that really is inviting and that uh, recognizes the importance of immigrant contribution and um, immigrant uh, uh, creativity and vitality in, in this country. And that if we do that in the right way, we would both increase the, the overall sort of um, number of legal immigrants, we decrease the need for people to feel that they had to cross the border illegally or, or without authorization. And we'd actually create a bigger space for to be able to deal with the many humanitarian concerns that that um, that people raise at the border and at ports of entry and even when they've come into the country and in some other way and are seeking asylum. So uh, it, it's it's it really sometimes does seem like an insurmountable problem, but a lot of it has to do with um, sort of changing the narrative and rethinking the, the way we approach the issue of immigration. The Trump administration has chosen an approach that is incredibly punitive. Um, and one would hope that in a new administration, we could, we could begin to reverse that trend. So Mary, I want to pick up on something that, that you said, and I want to go back to something that, that Kevin mentioned, which is that you said that we need immigration. What did you mean by that? Because there are those who are saying we don't need Im immigration. There are people who are across the country that, for whom they, they see this as the key issue. They believe that they have lost their jobs because of people crossing the border. They believe that they are far less safe because of people crossing the southern border. They're, they think of immigration with a brown face, not with a white face. And we know that there are many immigrants in the United States who come in not at the southern border. So explain a little bit more really, really quickly about this notion of needing immigration. Well, I think the U.S. has always had a love-hate um, a relationship with immigration. You know, on the one hand, we welcome immigrants because they bring um, they bring uh, energy, they bring uh, vitality, they bring um, new ideas to the mix. Um, and yet, at the same time, anytime a new culture comes into the United States from wherever, uh, there's a certain group of people who fear that change. And so, you've always got this tension. Um, but if you look at the at the facts and figures and the economic analysis, there is no question that America's economic growth 
and um, uh, long-term health depends on an expanding um, base of workers and consumers, um, a a youthful population as opposed to an aging population, um, the actual growth of our country. And growth is fueled quite a bit by immigration. Um, There's also a number of studies that demonstrate that the number of patents, the number of new businesses, the number of sort of entrepreneurial enterprises that go on are often fueled by immigrants. Many um, sort of Rust Belt cities and other places that have been really um, hit hard by, you know, the economic trends of the last 20 years have been revitalized by the, the growth of newcomers. And so it really is the case that if we welcome immigration, uh, it can lift the boat up for everybody, including those people who, you know, are most likely to see on a one-to-one basis um, the potential for their job to, to, to be uh, at risk because of immigration. And there are a few people for whom um, they may be in direct competition with immigrants. But if we have a more vibrant economy and we have more opportunities for everyone, that they'll, they'll be there'll be more to go around, I guess. And I've always said to people, uh, you know, when I, when I kind of hit directly with that question, you know, I can't, I can't deny that in your particular case, you may feel that you lost a job to someone, or you may feel that, that something isn't, um, it is different for you. But the only way we're going to all go forward and and improve the situation for everyone is to work through that together and figure out how we can all succeed rather than just trying to block people out or, you know, block kind of the impact of change. Well, thank you for that, Mary. Dean Johnson, I want to pick up on something that you said. Then we're going to talk about meatpacking, Domingo. And that is you mentioned NAFTA and farmers south of the border. Can you unpack that just a little bit more about the destabilization in that part of the region based on U.S. policy? Well, in NAFTA, um, the 1994 trade agreement, um, it benefited Mexico, benefited the United States economically, but the benefits weren't necessarily equal uh, to different sectors of the economy. And small farmers uh, and workers in, in, in small industries uh, were basically priced out of the, the market uh, by big uh, companies and big city um, uh, economic uh, operations. And what NAFTA did in the eyes of many is to depress the economies in the countryside, uh, increase wealth inequalities, and spur migration to, to, the, to the United States. Uh, so, so some would say that it's the United States' fault as well as Mexican elites' fault uh, for the increase in migration to the United States. And similarly, uh, some would say that um, U.S. foreign policy uh, in Central America, uh, backing dictators for, for long periods of time that uh, waged war on their citizens, led to, uh, to uh, institutions that were weak, uh, now can't control violence, aren't necessarily wedded to the rule of law uh, and have been places of violence that many people have fled. So so those folks would say that part of what we're seeing today uh, is uh, what we've reaped, uh, is that because of our policies, uh, people are fleeing their home countries and they're looking for refuge and they're coming to the United States. Uh, So so I think that that's that's part of the narrative that's, that's missing. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that. And I want to pick up on that with, with you, Domingo, because as folks are coming, crossing that border, coming into the United States, what we know is that overwhelmingly Latin, the Latinx workforce is in essential services from meatpacking to agriculture and healthcare. Some would say that they really are supporting, holding up the United States in jobs that some people otherwise just don't want, and it's Latinx folks that are doing that high-risk work, sometimes that incredibly dangerous work. People think about meatpacking. They don't really understand how dangerous that work is. And now we know that during pandemic, there has been a high risk of exposure to COVID-19 and at the same time, a lack of health insurance resources and so much more. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Put a human 
picture face on what essential care services mean in these times that uh, a Latinx face. Well, you know, I went to, uh, I've been to Greenlee, Colorado to a, a, a meatpacking plant there where eight workers died, uh, several hundred got sick. And then uh, after we highlighted, exposed what was happening at that plant, and then it plants all across the United States, Tyson, which produces the most chicken, um, and uh, another company called Smithfield that is does the hogs or pork chops. Um, President Trump signed uh, the, uh, the War Production Act that said these are essential workers. They got to go to work, even if they're risking their lives, even if they're going to get sick, because uh, they got to keep the meat uh, coming to America's tables, but without providing protection providing sick leave, and um, and as a result, literally thousands and thousands of workers have gotten sick. Many have been hospitalized, and unfortunately, over several hundred have died. Uh, and all of this it would have been preventable, but they're taking advantage of these essential workers, but are being treated as disposable workers. And we met with the CEOs of these companies, trying to deal with them directly, because frankly, OSHA, which is the government watchdog for workers, has AWOL, they're nowhere to be found. And, and, and the government is basically doing nothing to enforce any worker protections uh, for these in, uh, essential workers and also very endangered workers. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is they were already endangered before COVID because meatpacking is incredibly dangerous work that, you know, people use knives and saws and just what's necessary in terms of that work poses significant health risks. And as you've said, you know, this, we're looking at people being treated as fungible, basically Uh, essential, but not necessarily valued. I want to turn our conversation to the Supreme court. Um, and DACA, the DHS v. Regents of the United States of California, a case that was out of this Supreme Court term. Uh, Dean Johnson, in your article, DACA in Three Acts, Genesis Impacts Future, you summarize that, quote, the Supreme Court, in an opinion by Chief Justice John Roberts, held that the Trump administration's rescission of DACA was arbitrary and capricious and violated the Administrative Procedure Act, the APA. The majority, among other things, found that in making the decision to dismantle DACA, the Trump administration had not considered the interest of the recipients who had relied on the relief to buy houses, attend schools, and make other major life decisions. The majority made it clear that the president could lawfully end DACA, but would need to comply with the law, namely the APA, which I just mentioned, which governs the decisions of federal administrative agencies. And Chief Justice Roberts' opinion did not decide whether DACA was lawful, which of course was the reason offered by the Trump administration for its rescission. Dean Johnson, what is the future of DACA given all of this? And let's be clear that in a separate opinion, Uh, Justice Kavanaugh would have found that the administrative law principles should allow the administration's decision to rescind DACA to stand. So, Dean Johnson, what is the future of DACA? Well, uh, that's a very good question. And the future of DACA is uncertain. And I think that the future of DACA will depend on the election in November. Uh, I I believe that uh, the Trump administration, if President Trump wins, wins the election, uh, we'll go back to the drawing board and try to eliminate DACA. Um, he, he said that on many occasions, hasn't done it quite yet. And I think if uh, you know the Biden-Harris ticket wins, I think in um, part of the Democratic platform is to maintain DACA. Uh, the, the Supreme Court repeatedly said that uh, it, it wasn't deciding whether DACA was a good idea, a bad idea, legal or illegal. Um, but, but I think that the DACA... Uh, and the, the, the fate of the close to 800,000 DACA recipients uh, really rests on the election. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll have to wait and see how, how that, that turns out. Uh, I do think that it, to this point, the Trump administration made it clear that they're not even going to comply with the Supreme Court decision. Uh, the the uh, Supreme Court said that the, the effort to rescind DACA was unlawful, as you mentioned. Um, but still, the Trump administration is not taking new DACA op- applications. Uh, it has basically released a, a, a press statement saying 
that the Supreme Court decision was illegal uh, and flawed in many respects and said that Justice Thomas's uh, uh, dissent uh, was, was much more enlightened. Uh, an incredible position for uh, an agency to take, uh, even in these times. So I think that the future of DACA, like the future of the DREAM Act, uh, another possible immigration reform measure, and comprehensive immigration reform, really going to, to rest in large part on what happens in November. Mary, so what do the dreamers do now? Do they stop dreaming? Well, I think the dreamers are such uh, an incredible example of, of the agency and uh, power of of youth and of undocumented individuals. I mean, their their whole story has been one of kind of fighting back against the odds to to really win remarkable things. Um, the 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 dreamers I know aren't stopping. They're they're those who do have DACA right now are going to be forced to apply for it in one year increments um, under the under the latest set of Trump rules. But, um, I, you know, I think that they continue to be an inspiration to everybody to keep fighting back um, and to keep pushing. And, and if anything, you know, I think there's an energy within that community to encourage everyone who can to vote for change and to continue to work for um you know, changes legislatively. Uh, but, and, and in some ways that, that actually is the, the real answer. I think they're going to keep fighting until not only they, but their families are protected. And ultimately that protection is going to have to encompass legislation. So lastly, what I want to do is I, I want to turn to the system itself and how we re-envision uh, this system. So in an opinion letter to the Washington Post, an op-ed, Sister Norma Penmentel of the Missionaries of Jesus pled for help. She called for an end to the Migrant Protection Protocols, MPP. In her letter, uh, she said, these families are living in donated tents at the mercy of extreme weather. Here, she said, the temperatures can rise above 100 degrees, and when it rains, the downpours knock down their only refuge and leave them in mud pits. She said, imagine living in such uncertainty where even such basic needs as running water and a place to shower are non-existent, where you have to depend on outside organizations for food, which you have to cook over a campfire like prisons and nursing homes that have been breeding grounds for the virus COVID that is in the United States, the camps are just simply crowded with people who for now are not going anywhere. So Domingo, I want to start with you, then I'll turn to Kevin and then you, Mary, uh, perhaps. What do we do about the future of this system and the system that just seems frozen it needs to be totally overhauled. We need to go from having a homeland security uh, dealing with refugees and immigrants to a, uh, a true immigration and, immig and refugee service. We don't need SWAT uh, uh, individuals and, and, and armored vehicles and the militarization of the border, the militarization of this whole program has created this sort of a, the military industrial complex coming to refugees and immigrants. That's never the intent. That wasn't happening when you saw those boats land at Ellis Island uh, and, and at Statue of Liberty. Uh, and we got to go back to that. And I think hopefully if we get a new administration, we will have a bipartisan bill that will totally reform the immigration uh, system and that will bring America back to where it was as a welcoming country for refugees and immigrants in the future and really stand up and live up uh, to our code as uh, what the Statue of Liberty stands for, and that we are a nation of immigrants. And except for Afri uh, African-Americans, Native Americans, everybody else came here, chose to be here. Or some of us were waiting for y'all when you got here, uh, like my, my great-grandfather, uh, who was here in Texas back in the 1700s. So that's part of how, what we need to do. Mm -hmm. Dean Johnson, you authored Opening the Floodgates, Why America Needs to Rethink Its Borders and Immigration Laws. So how should America rethink its borders and immigration laws? Uh, I think we have to think about how uh, our immigration laws should focus on letting people in as opposed to keeping people out. We have an immigration law, the Immigration Nationality Act of 1952, that was forged in the, in the Cold War. It was designed to keep every, everybody, as many people out as possible, uh, especially people of color, 
uh, alleged communists um, and, and other people such as the disabled um, uh, and, and others. I, I think we have to re-envision our laws, figure out how to calibrate uh, our economic and other needs uh, with our immigration laws um, because they currently do not permit very many low and medium skilled workers to come to this country and low and medium skilled workers in, are in high demand in this country. And the Chamber of Commerce would endorse something like that. So would the Wall Street Journal. I, I think we have to turn the immigration laws on their head. Uh, I, I agree with Domingo. We have to rethink how the agencies are, uh, are assigned responsibility. Uh, I think we have to demolish our immigration courts and eliminate them because they're really just political tools used by the immigration, by the administration to keep people out. And it's basically traffic courts deciding death penalty cases. And it's, it's an embarrassment. Uh, and, and nobody believes in the legitimacy of the immigration court system. I think we have to look very carefully at our removal rules. Uh, President Obama wasn't great on, on removals, if you ask me. Uh, he said that our, our criminal removal laws were focused on gangbangers, to use his term, when in fact uh, close to 90% of the people removed from the country every year under his administration were low-level criminal offenders, including many traffic violators. So, so I think we, we, we have to start from ground zero. Um, and we also have to start having a reasonable dialogue about what we need. There are some hard questions to address. Uh, it's not clear that, that we should have completely open borders or completely closed borders. It's not clear what our economic needs are. Uh, but unfortunately, right now, uh, the issue is such a polarizing one that we haven't been able to have a meaningful and thoughtful dialogue in quite some time. Well, oh, thank you so much for that. And, and Mary, I, I want to add this piece about asylum seeking, because in a very recent article that you wrote, you argued that a new anti-asylum rule makes it virtually impossible for many women, children, and people fleeing gang and domestic violence circumstances to obtain asylum in the United States. So how do we think about that or fix that particular problem? Oh, um, it's a big question. I know. <laughs> Let's no, do the short version of it. it uh, I will try. Um, you know, I think that that one of the things that has happened um, in the last four years, but it's been a growing trend, not only in this country, but around the world, is to fear those who are most in need of our uh, help. Um, and so uh, the Trump administration started with the refugee program, slashing it dramatically from um, 110,000 uh, admission goal to 18,000 for this year. And as of uh, the end of June, had only admitted 8,000 of those 18,000 people. Um, clearly, over the course of the last three years, has done everything in its power to reduce access um, for asylum. And it's all about building on this notion that America isn't big enough, isn't generous enough, isn't um, uh, uh, able to uh, provide help to people who are, are in need. And so I, I think that, you know, we, we look around and we see all number of instances where Americans, in fact, are incredibly generous. Whenever there's a humanitarian crisis, um, people people turn out to help their neighbors. And so some of this is about reorienting. Again, it's this notion of narrative and turning things on its head, but re reorienting and helping people remember what an incredibly lucky, blessed, generous country we are, and that there is room enough for um, the refugees and the asylum seekers and the other people who are coming here who are, are seeking our help. And if, and if we give them room um, to, to get a new start in life, they'll turn around and, and repay that a hundredfold. Um, and so you, you start with that attitude, I think, and hopefully the, uh, a new administration would embrace that kind of approach, uh, at the border and elsewhere in talking about our humanitarian commitments. But then you also really, um, uh, have to pull back on all of the laws and executive orders and are not laws, but regulations and executive orders that the Trump administration has put in place to deny access. And so I think it is both that added shift 
and uh, you know changing changing the the mechanisms that we have but we also have to acknowledge and this is sort of the heavier lift that the world is rapidly changing particularly with climate change we are a world on the move and there are a number of people whose way of life um, is going to be threatened either because of political or uh, other kinds of persecution or because of just just the fact that their their environment is uh, making it impossible for them, them to live anymore. So we also have to be really committed to, to thinking about how the question of immigration is going to play into the next not only decade, but the next hundred years. Um, and if we don't do that, and if we don't think big picture from the beginning, we're just we're just going to keep being in this cycle of um, opening up for a little bit, then being afraid, opening up and being afraid. And um, I think I think this is the moment to really start asking those bigger questions and uh, layer that into uh, a framework for immigration that really does what I think are the key things that bind the immigration issue to the humanitarian issues, to the Black Lives Matter movement, to to the environment, which is we want an America where we are able to um, uh, restore economic security, protect every community and treat everyone with dignity. And if we use that kind of framework, we can build, I think, a better uh, legislative system, not only for immigration, but for all the other social ills that we have that we know we want to solve. Very quickly, something that we do each episode of our show is we think about silver linings. And I want to start off with you, Mary, and then I'll go to Domingo and then Kevin. And that is, do we see a silver lining coming out of this at all? This has been a dreadful time for so much that we've already discussed. Is there a silver lining? I think the silver lining is that far more Americans realize that this sort of hidden um, thing that's called immigration law and asylum and and refugee uh, issues and what's happening at the border, that there is this whole sort of dual system that exists and that we have to do a great deal to fight back to make it better. Um, the polls, the um, outpouring of support in the early days of the Muslim ban and the refugee ban show that people are energized, I think, to say we are a welcoming place, we are a country that cares. And if we can just give people the tools they need to be able to, to continue that support, I think we'll see a real resurgence in, in that kind of uh, uh, joy about welcoming others to this country. Thank you for that, Mary. Domingo. I think the silver lining is that we have uh, an awareness nationally of what's happening uh, to Latinos and immigrants in this country. And it's a, a awakening, especially among young. Uh, I had the pleasure of, of being a state representative and passing the first in-state tuition bill, uh, the Texas Dream Act, back in 2001, which was bipartisan. Uh, uh, you know, Rick Perry, the Republican governor, signed it. It was not controversial. Uh, but now that uh, immigration has become a weaponized political issue, uh, I think it cuts both ways. And I think you're going to see Latinos vote in large numbers, and they're going to be electing people that represent our interests and working with allies to make sure that we have a humane, decent immigration policy. So that's sort of the silver lining that I see right now. Thank you. And what about you, Dean Johnson? Silver lining? I, I, I would build on those. I think that uh, President Trump, uh, like him or not, has made people pay attention to immigration in a way that, that uh, hasn't really uh, been seen in, in more than a generation. Uh, when President Obama was in office, many horrible things were happening uh, but many Americans didn't seem to pay much attention to what was going on. So I think that one good thing about the Trump administration is that people are paying attention to Im immigration. I also think that the um, the Dreamer movement, uh, the, the the social activism, is one of the bright spot spots of uh, the of political activism of the 21st century so far. It's quite amazing. It used to be the case that undocumented people, uh, as President Bush said, you know, lived in the shadows. And these are undocumented people who are standing at the forefront of political activism. And they're not going away. Their activism is not going away. Their organization is impressive. And so I could see in the long run um, you know, some, some very significant political changes. And we've seen them uh, uh, in, in this state. In 1994, California passed Proposition 187, one of the early anti-immigrant immigration initiatives. Uh, now, California, uh, because of political changes in the state and uh, activism uh, and naturalization of, of Latinx immigrants, now California is a, a sanctuary state. 
we've come full circle. Uh, it's it's been 25 years, um, but but I think political action can bring forth positive change. Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. I want to thank my guests, Dean Kevin Johnson, Domingo Garcia, and Mary Giovanoli for joining us and being a part of this critical and insightful conversation. And to our listeners, I thank you for tuning in for the full story. We hope you join us again for our next episode where we will be reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is with special guests tackling issues related to an extremely relevant issue back to school. We will be joined by Representative Catherine Clark, Fatima Goss-Graves, and Randy Weingarten. It will be an episode like this one that you will not want to miss. For more information on what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com. If you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed, and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to visit us at Apple Podcasts. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. Rate and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Let us know know what you think about our show. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Maddie Ponce, Roxy Zal, and Mara Verabov. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Marsh Allen, and music by Chris J. Lee. Stephanie Wilner provides executive assistance. Music